Welcome to the Parent Matters Podcast, where we help you navigate the ever-changing landscape of parenting and equip you with tools to confidently parent your children. I'm Susan Stutzman, and today we're talking about how to know when your child needs a neuropsychological evaluation for ADHD. And to help me do that, I want to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sandy Cruz. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, the director of clinical training, and the director of the Heritage Diagnostic and Assessment Center. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad that we got a chance to do this. And before we get started with some questions around... um, what we can, you know, what ha- what we need to know uh, about if our child needs a neuropsychological evaluation for ADHD. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice and how you got started with testing and in the, you know, therapeutic world? Absolutely. So I've been a clinical psychologist for over 20 years, and my focus of my practice is on the neurodevelopmental disorders. So I love watching and helping children um, navigate different um, developmental milestones, different life transitions. I love walking alongside families as they try to navigate these things as well. Um, I also have three kids of my own. Um, And uh, one of my kids struggles with ADHD as well. So I understand Mm -hmm. the challenges that families face, um, both as a professional, but also as a mother who wants to see, you know, her child thrive. Yeah, which is so, I think is so important. And I think, you know, um, especially for parents that are going through this to know, I know that a a therapist and a psychologist and um, doesn't necessarily need to have a child that has gone through ADHD, but it adds a, a different component. So thank you for sharing that. That's, I know, I know it can be tricky being a parent with um, a child who struggles with Um, different challenges that we work with. (laughs) Yeah, most certainly. So today I want to talk about um, how to know when your child needs a neuropsychological evaluation for ADHD. But since our listeners, I would imagine, might have different or varying ideas or thoughts on what ADHD is, can you just simply define what ADHD is, those letters um, for our listeners before we jump in um, to talking about evaluating? Absolutely. So ADHD is an an acronym that stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. But I have to tell you, even the researchers say that um, that name can be a little misleading because we all know those um, children who don't have a deficit of, of attention on things that they love. So You know, I have some families say, well, he focuses so well during his video games or when doing Legos. So the researchers now say that it's not really a deficit of attention, Hmm. that the real issue is related to attention regulation. So how well does the child regulate their attention and their behavior to meet the demands of the situations that they find themselves in? So, you know... The, the level of attention and focus you need on the playground looks different than what you need in the classroom. So even though we use the word attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, don't get too tripped up on the word deficit. Think of regulation. How well does my child regulate him or herself in various um, situations? And then the other word that I think throws some people off is the word hyperactivity. 
So the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that certainly applies to some kids, doesn't it? But um, I work with a number of families that say, I don't get why the H is there in the acronym because my child you know, is daydreaming and loses focus, but is not overactive at all. So the term ADHD actually refers to three different types of, of attention concerns. So it could be more the inattentive presentation where the child loses focus quickly, struggles to get started on tasks, daydreams. It could be the hyperactive impulsive type, which is you know, as the name would imply, struggling with managing their behaviors, oftentimes getting ahead of themselves, not um, thinking before they act. And then the third type of ADHD is called ADHD combined presentation. And so that's actually a combination of the first two that we just mentioned. So those are the kids who struggle with inattention and focus, but also struggle with the overactivity piece as well. Okay. okay. Oh, wow. That was really helpful. And, and just as, just kind of out of curiosity, I'm, I wonder, um, as you, since you work with, uh, a lot of children that are showing up to get tested to find out what's, uh, what is going on neurologically, I wonder, um, is there a, is there any research that points to there's, um, one that's more prevalent in, uh, in our society today or in a gender um, than another? Yeah, I really appreciate you asked this question because I think they all probably occur at about the same rate. However, the ones who are more hyperactive or overactive or impulsive, those are the kids that catches everyone's attention pretty quickly. So those are the kids that are wiggly and messing with their neighbor in the classroom. So it catches the teacher's attention. Um, you know, in a classroom of 25 children, that child who sits in the back of the class, who's technically looking at the teacher, but maybe their mind is drifting away um, or perhaps daydreaming or losing focus, those kids may not be as quickly um, seen or observed mm-hmm. as having a difficulty as the ones who are busy and overactive. So do they? does one occur more than other? Not necessarily, but one gets... Um, uh, seen or showcased or diagnosed more quickly than the other. Yeah. Well, isn't that the truth though? You know, those that are acting out or have the louder ones get the attention first, but it doesn't mean that the others don't need it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And one other quick thought related to gender. Um, The research does show that the inattentive girl um, in the classroom can run the risk of flying beneath the radar. Hmm. So we need to pay attention to uh, girls and boys for sure, but the inattentive girl um, oftentimes may not be as readily seen as having a quote-unquote problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so helpful. It really sets the stage for what I want to discuss with you today. I really, you know, have... A lot of parents and um, caregivers that are not only clients of mine or their parents and caregivers of clients of mine or or their people that I know that I rub shoulders with that go to school um, in our community and um, I get this question a lot: How do you know when your child needs a neurological evaluation for ADHD? 
And what exactly is ADHD neuropsychological testing versus getting going to a doctor and the doctor saying, like a, a primary care physician or a pediatrician, and the doctor says, hey, your child has ADHD. Like, what's the difference? Can you help us understand that? Yeah, I appreciate that question because that's a question that is on the minds of many parents who are watching their child's development. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I think it's important for us to start with is that all kids get a little wiggly at times or get a little inattentive at times. In fact, no adult pays attention 24-7, you know, um, all the time. Those of us who do not have ADHD, we know when we need to tune out and get a brain break, and we know when we need to tune back in to get things done. Um, so, so one thing we want to first of all start with is what is developmentally typical for a child that age? So I work with a number of parents who they bring in their five-year-old boy and we have a discussion of what's typical for a five-year-old boy for them to get a little wiggly and short attention spans. You better believe it. And we're not going to call that a problem unless it starts to create a functional impairment for that, that child. Meaning, um, um, are they getting up from the dinner table so many times that it's disrupting the family Mm -hmm. in a way that's a problem? Are they wiggling around with their neighbor or goofing off and making silly noises in a way that disrupts the class? Those are functional impairments. Or even as the child gets older, you know, is that middle school um, student who is in seventh grade and really missing assignments and feeling really distracted and very disorganized? Is it creating a functional impairment where it's starting to interfere with academic progress? relationships at home, you know, Mm -hmm. i.e. sometimes the parents, friendships, um, or just general life skills, self-management. You know, I work with a a lot of teenagers where the parent says, you know, we've been kind of watching this and it's kind of a problem. Now he's a junior in high school and we're trying to figure out, is he ready to go to college? Yeah. Um, So I think one of the key issues is to what extent are your issues or concerns creating a functional impairment? And if they're Mm -hmm. interfering with that child's ability to make good friendships or interfering where mom and dad and the child are having such conflict around homework time or, you know, whatever it might be, then that starts to raise the red flag. You know what? Maybe it's time to get this checked out. Yeah. And so when you do get, when you're at that point, let's say you're a parent, you're a caregiver, you're like, man, this is a little more than what I want or can handle. And I'm ready to get it checked out. What is a battery of tests? What is neuropsychological testing? What does that even mean? Yeah. Great question. So first of all, neuropsychological testing looks at the relationship between brain and behavior. So Mm -hmm. I won't get into a whole lot of jargon with that, but I will just simply tell you that testing gives you a picture, a snapshot of the child's functioning in a number of different areas. So if we're looking at neuropsychological testing, um, testing then takes a picture or really gets the landscape of how that child is doing related to a number of different executive functions. And that's, you know, a fancy word that describes that student's ability to get started on tasks, stay focused, refrain from impulsive behavior, so on and so forth, so that they can get tasks done, Mm i.e. usually schoolwork. 
So the neuropsych testing would then give the family a picture of how their child is doing um, so that they can say, okay, yeah, this is typical for a student his age, or you know what? No, this piece is not typical. What do we need to get in place to move him or move her in a better direction? Um, so it really helps you get really good information so that you can make a good game plan to help the child move forward in any areas where he may be less developed. It also really helps the family or the school get information on where is the child doing well. Um, you know, one of the things that I hate in testing is if we only focus on every single thing going wrong and we don't pay attention to where is the child doing well or what are some of the competencies or resiliencies that the child or the family have that can really um, help cultivate growth. Yeah, I think I think that's so important because oftentimes we uh, we focus on uh, in our society or in general. Yeah, like what can we do better or what is, uh, you know, what is an opportunity versus, wow, this child really does this well. I know one of the clinicians at my practice who's worked with kids um, as a social worker and worked with kids with ADHD for over 25 years. He talks about how they have this special superpower that nobody else does, mm -hmm. you know, that they can, that they can, uh, you know, see things that they pay attention to things that other people might totally miss. Yeah. But then with, you know, every superpower comes a little bit of, um, you know, need to be able to hone and, and, uh, figure out what do we want to keep and what do we not. So mm -hmm. I, I love that you mentioned that to think and to also be looking for in this, in a test, in a battery of tests, you know, for what their deficits might be, but also what they're really good at so that we can focus on that. And that kind of leads me to the next question of why would a parent get testing done and what does the testing evaluate specifically? I know sometimes when I think about this, you know, for te for an to actually go through testing, you know, it's a it's a quite a process. You interview them, correct, and then um, and then you do a number of tests, and we'll talk a little bit more specifically about that at the end. But um, but like, oftentimes, I when I talk to parents, I share with them if your you know if your child gets a a test, we can then see a little more clearly, like you said, a snapshot, but it's also helpful to advocate for them for um, services in different places and spaces in life, such as school or sports, etc. But I'm curious, can you flesh that out a little bit? So why would a parent get testing? Hmm. And, uh, you know, why are you evaluating certain specifics? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate the question. So first of all, sometimes parents come in because they want something called diagnostic clarity. Does okay. she have ADHD? And if so, what type? And if so, what interventions does she need to help her to move in a better direction? Um, sometimes there is the possibility of a focus issue or overactivity issue, but then also maybe some worry or some anxiety, or gosh, you know, is there a learning disability here? So sometimes it's not just one question, but the, the parent just comes in and says, gosh, there's a few things that are just not quite what they should be. Help, you know, help us get some clarity on the situation. So diagnostic clarity for sure. 
Um, you mentioned a very important goal of testing, or of many types of testing, rather, and that's advocacy. Mm-hmm. So based on what we learn about the child, both the strengths and the areas for growth, what does she need? What does she need in the school setting? What does she need at home? What does she need in medically? You know, um, so the testing can really help us hone in clarify things so that we know how best to advocate for her. So, you know, one common source of advocacy is trying to seek perhaps an IEP or a 504 plan in the school. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, she really would thrive best with X, Y, and Z in place to really shore her up and promote better learning. Um, So, or even um, accommodations on tests at school or college entrance exams like the the ACT and the SAT. And one thing I tell parents is, you know, your, your child's in fourth grade. You know, now is the time to really get uh, clarity on what's going on. Because if there is an issue and if it's a significant issue, we want to develop what's called a paper trail so that we're um, being really clear at what some of the difficulties are. So when he's in 10th grade, and then wanting to get accommodations on the ACT or the SAT, you know, those college entrance tests, mm-hmm. we've already established all along that there's a difficulty. So it's not that Johnny is just showing up in 10th grade, you know, suddenly with ADHD and wants accommodations on those tests. But we're establishing there has been a history of difficulties. X, Y, and Z has been put in place over the years to help um, address some of the issues. Yeah, and if I'm, you know, if I am correct, and I and I could totally be wrong, but, um, you know, recently I know in talking to some parents, it can be a little more difficult to advocate for your child if you get testing later on, even like in high school. Is that correct, or is that not true? Just because of that paper trail. Oh my goodness! Um, Yes, it's true. And you know, in the twenty plus years that I've been licensed and practicing. I notice it to be true more now in the last couple years than ever. Hmm. Um, and I don't know what the, why that is. It might be that some, you know, schools are seeing kind of an influx in requests for accommodations. And so the schools have to be judicious and they really need to make sure there truly are functional impairments that would be helped um, yeah. through an accommodation plan or college boards get this influx of, of students that are requesting the te- uh, testing accommodations. And so you're right. The more we've established that paper trail, the more it's like, hey, he's not just you know showing up in 10th or 11th grade with a problem. This has been something that's been going on for a while. Yeah. So, so basically, if you see something, it's a good idea to start the process young. Yeah. <laughs> yes, for no, sure. Yes. And oh, other- that's, go ahead. I was going to say, the other piece about that is, and this happens oftentimes with kids with neurodevelopmental disorders, like ADHD, learning disabilities, even autism spectrum concerns, where there is a reality, what they call a reality gap, meaning a gap between where the student's potential is, but then where they're actually functioning now. And so, you know, the, the mom will say to me, I know she's capable of this, but her grades or her behavior is this. And sometimes that gap between where their potential is, but where they're currently functioning, that can create a lot of stress for the parents, the students. And sometimes in that gap, 
that's where the child can start to get more anxious or more depressed or even lose their motivation for school. And so um, that's all the more reason why you want to catch it early if there is something going on and name it early so that we can start working on shrinking that gap so that by the time they're older, you know, middle school, high school, you're not dealing with significant other issues as well. Yeah, because, uh, you know, one thing that I like to mention to people, and I um, assume you agree, if you don't, it's okay, it's okay. I'd love to hear your, your perspective, but our brain is a muscle. And so the more that we can see what it needs and help to strengthen it and grow it towards executive functioning skills or different things, the the narrower the gap can become. Yes. But if we don't know there's a deficit, then we're not strengthening it. And then that gap remains. Yes. Or increases. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. What you're referring to is the neuroplasticity of the brain. The brain is mm-hmm. always changing. The brain has a wonderful capacity for growth. But you're right. If we don't know what areas need to be shored up and, and grown, then we can't support the child in the right way. So absolutely, early intervention, early identification, and early intervention are the key. Awesome. So tell me, um, just because I'm fascinated and I think our listeners would be um, interested in hearing, what are, um, are there what are they or are there different types of testing that parents should make sure are part of a comprehensive ADHD battery of tests? So they've already given you a call and they are, you know, they're concerned that their child has some behaviors that are, you know, causing them to not be able to focus in school or causing relational issues. Um, let's say they can't get in to see you they're they're or they're somewhere else in the country what should they be asking for or advocating for themselves um or maybe is there a standard that everyone uses to test like the different types of tests the what we would call a battery i would believe um of tests for adhd Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So I think it depends on what the issues are and who the family talks to. Um, when we think about um, different types of testing, let's think about it on a continuum. At the very, very front end of the continuum might be the screening forms that a pediatrician might send out. Like, for example, that family may start with a pediatrician and say, hey, I think Susie or Johnny, they're a little off. Um, and so that that pediatrician may recommend that they do the comprehensive testing or they may send out some screeners. So sometimes Mm -hmm. parents say, oh yeah, he was already tested by his pediatrician. And then when I find out more, I find out it was the screening forms. I think that's great. I think that's a helpful place to start for some, but sometimes I really think if the, if the functional impairments are significant enough, go ahead and get the battery of tests. Um, So then when we think about our continuum of testing, that's the screening forms that we just talked about. Sometimes a school might send out screening forms. Mm -hmm. And then further on down the continuum are really the more complex um, neuropsychological testing batteries. So the way I like to describe it to parents is there is the Honda version all the way down to the Cadillac version. And I, I have to tell you, I'm not a car person And I have to tell you, I drive a Honda. So I think both can be great because both 
types of testing um, get you where you need to go? Mm-hmm. And, and both um, can help answer key questions. The more ca- Cadillac, the more comprehensive, may have more bells and whistles. It may offer more extensive information, um, such as maybe achievement testing, more kind of in-depth learning testing, something that's not quite that comprehensive, but still very good, which you know we might call the Honda version, would be something that would oftentimes be covered by insurance. Sometimes if you're asking for more in-depth testing, it may not necessarily be covered by insurance, but it's still good and still helps us answer the question of, is ADHD present? Are there other factors, depression, anxiety that might be going on? Um, So again, any of those can help you clarify the question of ADHD. It just depends on how much detail do you want to get into and how important is it to you that insurance covers the testing? Yeah. yeah. And so kind of like blood work, I, you know, I, that's where my mind goes. When you go to, uh, you know, for your physical each year, sometimes they'll order standard blood work. But then if you are having a problem or they do a whole panel um, or you're interested to see your levels of different things or you're like, I have history of thyroid or I have history of this. Can people pick and choose or do you or do you have to have a recommendation or do you do that? Um or is it just, you know, I don't know, or do like in the forms that you fill out, I'm, cu- I'm curious for our listeners. I, I know that, um, like my understanding is if you, ha- if you have an interview with the parent, you hear their concerns, yes. um, and then, and then you recommend different tests, but based on their ability, um, to, actually, you know, per, you know, pay for the testing or utilize insurance or what they actually need, then they can, can they choose or how does that, how does that work? Yeah, that's such a good question because that we, we find that with parents all along. Sometimes some parents come in and say, hey, I talked to the pediatrician. I would like X, Y, and Z testing, you know, ADHD testing. She has struggled since second grade. We're also concerned about anxiety. So in those situations, that parent comes in with a fair amount of clarity. There are other times a parent says, something is off. She now hates going to school. Her grades have dropped. Um, I don't know what I'm asking for. And that's yeah. okay too. So we, we, we see it all. And so we always start, regardless of you know how, how much the parent comes in with having you know clarity about what they want, we always start with a very good and detailed diagnostic interview. Um, the researchers all across the board would say, with an ADHD evaluation, you have to start there. Sometimes that's all you need. You know, oh, if it's so completely clear, then you can make your diagnosis just on the interview. More often than not, there are complicating factors that um, add into it that then require the actual, you know, in-depth testing. So, um, so even if the parent comes in and says, I'm not really sure what I'm looking for, I'll usually start with, well, what are you concerned with? Or Mm -hmm. what are the teachers concerned with? Or what did the pediatrician say that, that got you wondering? So I always like to start with what are some of the functional impairments that you're noticing? Um, and then from that, we can determine together, okay, based on what you're saying, I would recommend an evaluation that covers ADHD, that rules out anxiety, 
or or hey you're you're talking about a number of factors that could point to something like a high functioning autism we all, we'd also want the battery to include that um sometimes the parent voices concerns about reading issues that have been going on for a while and now they're getting worse so sometimes then from that good diagnostic interview we include dyslexia testing um, sometimes we do it in phases. So sometimes we say, you know what, we're going to start with the focus issues, the ADHD. And if we need to do kind of a phase two of testing and do the, the reading or uh, learning related testing, you know, in a separate uh, kind of a, a phase two, we'll do it that way. Because sometimes if the kid is so wiggly and unfocused, you're not going to get a good picture of the reading abilities until you figure out what's going on first. True. <laughs> so, yeah, the, or there are times where it's good to get both done at the same time. So again, that's a decision that I really partner with the parents on and we make that decision together. Um, but it always starts with a good diagnostic interview. So it helps me to get the context. Um, I'm a big context person. I think all behaviors, all, you know, issues happen in the context of a family or a school setting or an environment. So I want to learn more about the context so that I can understand the behaviors better. Um, so by doing that good diagnostic interview, we're getting good information about how she's doing medically, academically, socially, um, you know, in, in all areas so that then we can circle back around and kind of drill down, okay, based on this, What's going on with the focus issues that are making the academics more difficult? Sure, sure. Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful. Well, I still have a, um, a few lingering questions, but let's take a quick break because I want our listeners to know about a free resource that we have for you. Um, many parents and caregivers struggle to feel connected with their children. We're so busy with school and work that we often forget to take time to connect with our kiddos. That's why... Kid Matters Counseling has put together a free five-day parent challenge where I will send you five emails, each with a high-impact, easy-to-do activity that you can do in five minutes or less to create that meaningful connection and an engaging moment with your child. So if you're interested, just go to our website. It's kidmatterscounseling.com backslash challenge. Kids grow up so fast, so don't wait. And also... Just a quick disclaimer, the topics discussed in this podcast should be considered a matter of personal opinion. They do not reflect professional advice. If you or your child is in need of mental health counseling, support, or testing, please reach out to a licensed counselor or psychologist today. Okay, so Sandy, what should a parent or a caregiver expect if they go and seek testing. So start to finish, like bullet points, like what is what does it look like? You said first, okay, they call mm -hmm. Heritage. Mm -hmm. they, they get an appointment for a diagnostic test. What happens next? Yeah. Yeah, so if they're coming to Heritage, they would do an intake first and they can see the intake link on our website or they can email me directly and I'll get that to them. Once they do the intake, um, then I reach out to them so that we can schedule that first appointment. And depending on the age of the child, sometimes I like for the child to be there in the appointment. 
Sometimes the parents say, look, there's a number of factors we want to discuss just with you. Um, Or if the child is really young, four years old, five years old, sitting through an hour long conversation with adults can, can be a, a little, a little much for them. So we will decide together based on the age and the, the issues of who needs to be in that first diagnostic interview, but it always involves the parents. Um, and sometimes the kid together with the parents, sometimes if the kid is old enough, I'll do a separate appointment with the child just so I can hear his or her perspective. So that's our diagnostic interview. So that's where we're going to really get the lay of the land, really build a good foundation for that evaluation. And then from there, we map out what needs to be in the testing. Then so how many weeks, how, like, What's the what the time frame from diagnostic interview to the mapping out or them knowing what your recommendation is? We do it right there in the appointment. So oh, wow. within that hour, I say, okay, based on what you're saying, X, Y, and Z is what I would recommend. Okay. Um, and so we kind of talk it through there. We, we talk about what that would look like. And then we set up the testing appointment. And um, in COVID... You know, we try to be as, as safe as we can. Some of the diagnostic interviews we do via telehealth. However, the actual neuropsychological testing, we prefer to do in person. So mm-hmm. we want to be very respectful of people's safety. So we follow all of the CDC protocols about what that would look like. However, we still think our, our practice believes that in-person evaluation is going to help us get a better picture of some of those neuropsych um, constructs, issues. So we do, we do the direct testing with the child. Um, and, and neuropsych testing often includes indirect um, measures and direct measures. So the direct measures are the neuropsych or the neurodevelopmental tools that I'm working on with the student, him or herself. The indirect measures would be parent forms, teacher forms, and then that student, depending on how old they are, they will also fill out some tests and forms. And let me just tell you, I think it is extremely important. Any good evaluation has got to hear from other people other than just the child. So the parent, the teacher, um, sometimes if a person is going to try to do an evaluation that doesn't include teacher input, I think it's, it runs the risk of being limited because mm-hmm. you, you want your testing to have ecological validity. Fancy word, basically it means you want to make sure that any difficulties you're seeing match what's going on in the real world. Because yeah. when I'm testing that person, that child in my perfectly quiet office with few distractions, I may, may see, oh, the kid looks pretty good. But then when I talk to the three high school teachers and the mom who is there during homework time after school, they may paint a very different picture. And so you want to make sure that the results that you're getting are really consistent with, you know, how that child is doing in the real world setting. So teacher input, parent input, sometimes a coach or a Boy Scout leader, sometimes they give me their input, very valuable. And how and what is the what is the time frame of that? Is that like a five hour day? Is that a f- like a few days? Like what are what are we talking about? Honda yeah. version? Yeah, really great. Yeah, <laughs> Honda version. The Honda version um, would oftentimes be three to four hours in the okay. office. It could take a little longer if the 
the student is filling out a lot more forms. It also could take longer if you're adding additional things to the battery. Like if you're trying to rule out high-functioning autism, if you're trying to rule out a learning disability, then that, of course, adds, and, and the student may come back a second day or even a third day, depending on how big big the battery. But the typical Honda version of ADHD testing that's covered by insurance, I would say three to four-ish hours, maybe a little longer if the student needs more time to fill out forms. But you can usually get it done in one day. Okay, so we have the initial intake call, you email them back or they, and or you have someone set up the diagnostic interview. You have a diagnostic interview appointment. At that, you recommend, you tell people what... Um, uh, you d- you decide together with the parents and sometimes the child if they're there. Then you set up the testing day or days. Mm-hmm. Then then what happens next? Mm-hmm. So hopefully, you know, the, the um, family has agreed that we're going to f- um, get teacher forms filled out. So we send out the forms to the teachers. Sometimes, I mean, teachers are busy. And if you're wanting to hear from one or two teachers, it, it may take a few weeks. Um, but assuming we get that information back pretty quickly, then we set up what's called the testing feedback meeting. And that's a meeting where um, it's about 45 minutes to an hour where we go over the results of the testing. So, you know, in a typical scenario, once I have finished testing the student, if the teacher forms get back to me pretty quickly, we can set up that feedback meeting within the next three to four weeks. Um oh. Um, but sometimes if the teachers are delayed in getting the forms or the child isn't done filling out his forms and has to come back a second day, that may stretch it out. But, you know, I don't know. I'm one of those people. I like to give people the information quickly. I mean, many times a family, they've taken a little while to muster up the courage or the clarity to know they need the testing. Yeah. Once they're clear on, yeah, we need this testing, they want answers and they want them as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm especially if they want to use that information to advocate for the child or to put some important interventions in place. So um, I'm really big on being responsive and turning things around quickly so that we can give that family some answers and then dialogue about what interventions need to be in place to support the child. Great. So, okay, so diagnostic, in the initial phone call, diagnostic interview, the actual testing, uh, parent forms, teacher forms, child forms, then you, then you look at all of that and you create a recommendation and you provide that in a feedback as well as a, um, as, as well as a, as a test result or what is what does that look like so what do they get at the end yes so they get a final report and in that report you know it lists all the um the background information the tests that we gave what the results of the tests were any possible diagnoses that may have been made ADHD and or you know other things and then it's got a section called the recommendations section And I'm a big believer in, you know what, let's not use all this fancy jargon that the parents can't relate to or, you know, 20 different recommendations that nobody is realistically going to do. We like to make our recommendations practical and doable. And so, you know, in that section of the report, it's going to list the different recommendations for based on what we found out in the testing, this is what we recommend. 
Um, so sometimes for, for ADHD, you may see recommendations related to working with a therapist to help build maybe emotion regulation or different executive function skills. It may include a recommendation for medication. Um, it will include a recommendation for non-medication approaches because, you know, I work with a number of families where they're, they have questions about whether or not yeah. medication should be the route to go. And I respect that. So we always give medication and non-medication recommendations so that the family can move forward in a way that fits with their values. Um, but I always tell families to be in contact with the pediatrician. And we always get a copy of the report to the pediatrician because that pediatrician can help talk about the different ways to treat ADHD, um, they specialize in, you know, the ph pharmacological or the medication ways, but many good pediatricians know of um, other non-medication routes as well. Um, mm -hmm. So our our recommendation section speaks to that, and it also gives the family websites and book resources to help facilitate their learning related to the ADHD or whatever the testing showed. Wow. Wow. That sounds comprehensive. <laughs> and I can say that it is based on some of the testing um, reports that I've seen that you do. So thank you for your work. That is you. I folks that are listening, uh, she really does all this. It's not just <laughs> it's just it's not just her talking about something that would be a nice thing to do. <laughs> no. Um, but Sandy, you you know, you have provided so much support um, to uh, the families and children in my um, practice. And um, I know we have a, a lot of listeners all over the country, but also here in Illinois. And, and can you tell them how people can get in touch, people, how they can get in touch with you um, or find out more about you specifically? Yeah. Where, where can they go? Yeah, great. So the first easiest way would be to go to our website at Heritage Professional Associates. And the website is heritageprofessional.org or excuse me, dot com. Sorry about that. Heritage. It's okay. Okay. Heritage. <laughs> It'll be, a, there'll be a link in the show notes. So if they want to, if, if you want to go there, just click on the link. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So go into our website and they can look me up in the staff contacts and uh, shoot me a contact or email that way, or they can just email me directly um, at scruise, K-R-U-S-E, at heritageprofessional.com. Awesome. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a pleasure. I know I have learned even more than I thought that I could. Mm -hmm. And I know that our listeners, um, parents and caregivers and professionals um, really appreciate the resources that you have shared um, if there, if there's any other resource that you would encourage a parent um, who's seeking uh, or thinking about getting their child um, a neurological evaluation, um, what would it be? Hmm. You mean a neuropsychological evaluation? Yes, I'm that, sorry. Yes. <laughs> you know, I would say there is a book out there, and I, I'm blanking on the author's name, but it's called Straight Talk to Kids About Psychological Testing. So that's a user-friendly book um, that can be helpful to parents. Um, I also would, I always encourage them to start with their pediatrician 
because their pediatrician, they already have a relationship with that pediatrician. And just to talk about, hey, what would be the pros and cons of testing right now? So that's always a really easy place to start as well. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sandy. Thank you so much for joining me. And to all our listeners, thank you so much for joining as well. If you found this conversation useful, subscribe to the podcast and please join me next time for the Parent Matters podcast. And remember, don't parent alone. Hmm.